This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort, the beautiful Elite City Resort Hotel here in Kalamata, Greece, our penultimate broadcast from Kalamata. Uh, one more week to go. Next week will be our final program live from Greece, and then we're heading on up uh, to Athens for the final leg of our uh, our trip here. And I'm going to miss it. Uh, it's a ways away. We're uh, uh, still down here, as I say, until next week. But um, missing Canada, but i, I got to tell you, once you come here and you experience the sea and the people and the food and the mountains and the clean air, it gets a hold of you, and it has certainly. Um, so... The, um, the mighty Aphrodite just arrived, actually. It was a bit of a surprise. I knew she was coming. It was sort of a last-minute thing. Once she got word that Little North had an accident and uh, fractured his, his arm, she moved heaven and earth uh, to get on a plane and come over here. And we didn't tell the boys until we picked her up at the bus station here in Kalamata. And, uh, boy, you should have seen the look on their faces. They missed their mom, and uh, so did I. So... It's great to have uh, the whole family down now here together. Uh, before we get started, I want to welcome uh, our new affiliate. I mentioned this last week, but it was sort of towards the tail end of the program. Uh, a big, hearty welcome to the Conspiracy Show family, to our new affiliate, WCRA AM 1090 in Springfield, Illinois. WCRA AM 1090, the news talk leader, Springfield, Illinois. Welcome. Great to have you aboard. Uh, I was mentioning the mighty Aphrodite uh, coming down here, and, and one of the things that I, I asked her, I said, you know, when, when, we, when we came over here, you know, there was so much news about how dire the, the economic situation is here, but I'm not seeing it. I mean, yes, there are, there are people who are in need, obviously, but I mean, the, the average person in the street, they don't seem to be hung up on it. The fact that, you know, the unemployment rate is so high, and we hear so much about the debt and so forth. There's just such a, a joie de vivre among the people. 
And she said, that's right. She said, and she had just come down from Athens. She said, same thing up there. The nightclubs are full every night. The restaurants are jam-packed every night. People go out and have a good time and go about their business. And it's because, she says, they just, Greeks live for the day. And it makes sense to me as I, as I, uh, as I uh, experience the life down here. That's, that's exactly what people do. They live day to day. And there's a certain freedom in that, you know. Uh, not to be caught up in, in uh, the doom and the gloom. But freedom is really the, the, the subject of our first hour, because I'm about to welcome aboard to the Conspiracy Show a researcher and truth seeker who says we're all living under indentured servitude to the money system. And he's here to explain how, contrary to popular belief, we don't actually own anything, including our own lives, He's going to explain how this happened and reveal why our names on all government documents are spelled in all capital letters. Just file that away for future reference. That's going to be important in this discussion. He's going to explain how we can break free from this debt bondage and live truly free lives as God intended. Vic Beck began researching the banking and legal system full-time as of 2000 after hearing the Ed Griffin audio of Creature from Jekyll Island. He's read most federal and provincial legislation and studied the workings of money and banking and government control and regulation. Although many would argue otherwise, he discovered that people in the so-called civilized countries are not free as they think they are. There's a level of freedom unknown to mankind that's not taught in schools or discussed publicly. Claiming ownership is the basis of the bondage people are under. This led to deeper study into government regulation of commercial activity, money, banking, and ownership of property. He wanted to know why life is the way it is for the average Joe, or appears to be economically and commercially, or uh, sorry, uh, uh, why uh, life for the average Joe appears to be economically and commercially, and as relates to business activity. He discovered he has evidence that proves things are not as they appear. He discovered and has the facts and evidence to prove, contrary to what people are told and believe, we do not own anything. Not the house, not the car, not the money or boat, the cottage, the furniture, the name, or contrary to what is happening to people, drowning in debt or just above being broke. He says the entire system is essentially a fabrication. In fact, we have no debts. We don't need money or banks. The perceived need for money to survive or have a life and debt are the two primary tools used to control people. But to do that, people must first be made to believe they own property. Great pleasure to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, truth seeker researcher, Vic Beck. How are you, Vic? Are you there, Vic? Uh, right back in the studio. I'm not hearing Vic. He seemed to have dropped off the line. All right. Well, Tim Spreen back in the studio. Uh, if you can try to reach Vic again, we'll reconnect with him. Just want to give you a heads up what's coming up on the, uh, the program in the not-too-distant future. Uh, Canadian UFO historian Grant Cameron, one of the preeminent researchers in the business, uh, will be with us. He of the presidentialufo.com website uh, will be along with our good friend Victor Vigiani, who will join us in the studio. Uh, 
uh, uh, Grant Cameron has just penned a, uh, well, earlier this year, uh, published a new book entitled UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants. And we'll, uh, we'll talk about this UFO control group that has really kept the lid on the whole UFO file, if you will, for about 70 years. And uh, there was something else that popped up on his, uh, on his uh, website recently uh, that I found very interesting, and it was about John Lennon's UFO encounter back in the 70s. So uh, Grant Cameron will join us to talk about Majestic 12, John Lennon's close encounter, uh, and uh, many other things. And also, uh, Ron Patton will join us uh, coming up shortly on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, he, the uh, publisher of Paranoid Magazine, and James Eugenio, our JFK researcher, will return in several weeks to uh, pick up on our ongoing uh, JFK series as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination. All right, Vic Beck is back. Are you there, Vic? Yes, I am, Richard. How are you? Great. Great to have you aboard once again. Uh, I was talking about uh, the, uh, the the people here in Greece, uh, and despite all the doom and the gloom, they have this joie de vivre. They seem to live for today. Uh, there is a real sense of freedom in that, and, and that's what we have you on board to talk about: is uh, freedom and how I guess we lost it, how we became uh, indentured servants uh, to this debt burden. So I, I guess, or this money system, I guess we need to spend a few moments talking briefly about how this money system works. What is money? And uh, I mean, I, I, I understand that this is probably a, a five-hour lecture in and of itself, but given that we only have about 40 minutes, we'll just sort of uh, hit the high notes here. Yeah, well, is, how, how do you see the money system? Keep it short and sweet. Well, it used to be uh, <clears throat> previous to the 1920s or 19, early 1930s that a man would have his own gold, for example, or property, and he could put that in the safe at a bank and the bank would issue him notes backed by his own gold. Uh, in those days, you owned the gold, so you owned the note, and uh, you could circulate those notes as money, as cash, and uh, whoever had the cash could take that note back to the bank and get the gold, if they so chose. That's kind of how money was in the old days, but then the governments all went bankrupt. Um, <clears throat> as a result of the Depression, everything changed, and that's when the Securities Commissions came into being to regulate stocks and bonds and, and securities and collateral, so on and so forth. And as of those days, is when uh, basically gold or, or money was no longer backed by gold. And then in the 60s, they removed silver uh, backing money. So basically at that point, the only thing now that's backing the money or what circulates as the medium of exchange is really only credit, but it's backed by the property. It <clears throat> actually belongs to the people. It was given to us by God. It's ours by divine right, and that includes our labor. However... Do the uh, registration of birth process, the documentation that takes place in uh, registering the birth of pretty well every man, woman, and child in, again, the civilized world. All of that property has been seized, and that is what backs the money now, and that's why we don't actually own anything. So money is debt. Well, yeah. Can explain how that works. Yeah, it's, it's well, it's debt because... Our property, the property that belongs to the people, and I'll get to the birth registration, how they did that. But because they've basically seized the, the evidence of title to, our, to, to the resources of the countries and the productivity of the people, the fruits of the labor of the people, um, that allows the money to flow. That's how we came out of the Depression. 
that's when all of a sudden I talked to a 90-year-old woman a few years ago, and she lived through that period and said that, you know, there was no money. All of a sudden there was all of this money. Where did it come from? <clears throat> well, the instant they, they, they put these mechanisms in place, the, the future productivity of the people was pledged as collateral, uh, basically to the treasuries. Now the treasuries could now issue cash through the central banking, central banks that every country has. And that's how the money came into existence. And also all that money that's circulating now is actually backed by property that belongs to the people. In fact, <clears throat> not in evidence, but, uh, and that's why it's evidence of debt, because it's what's owed to people. So the minute a, a new dollar is, is printed, mind you, it's now all electronic, the moment that new dollar comes into being, it's already debt. That's correct, but but the but there is an asset backing. You see, it's it's not possible. The rules of banking are simple, and that all money or that what circulates as a medium medium of exchange must have something tangible backing it. In other words, not that it ever happens, but if the day of reckoning came, that uh, again back in the old days you could redeem your notes for the actual substance being the gold. Well, today that that gold is now replaced by the productivity of the people, the houses, the cars, the TVs, the furniture. So uh, gold, silver, so on and so forth, jewelry, jewelry, all of that stuff is now backed by, <clears throat> back is what is backing the money. And those things have to be in place in order to create money. <clears throat> okay, so we are in, in essence the collateral. Listen, we'll take a time out, we'll come back, Vic Beck, talking about how we became slaves to the money system and how we can get off of this uh, wheel, if you will. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece, our fourth of five shows that will be coming to you live from Kalamata. Uh, Vic Beck is on the line, truth seeker, researcher, and uh, he spends his time informing people of the evidence. He says that proves they do not own property, so they may begin the journey of freeing themselves from burdens associated with ownership, such as government rule, debt, payment obligations, lack, limitation, and taxes. And um, I'll, we'll tell you how to get a hold of, uh, of Vic a little bit later in the program. Now, Vic, let's just back up. Before we get into the, the government documents that sort of entrapped us, uh, let's, let's talk about this idea that we don't own anything. We don't own our houses. We don't own our cars. Uh, we don't own property. Yeah, well, to do that, we have to get right into the, uh, to the documentation that was done at the time of the registration of, of the births. Is the only way they can do that. All right. Okay. Then let's proceed with the all cap letters on our birth certificates and yeah, what that it, means. Yeah, it actually starts before that. There's a document that the parents fill out. It's called the in Canada here. It's in it's in all the countries. The title of it may change, but it's a document that the parents fill out information with respect to the birth of the child. There's a form one that the doctor fills out, but it's the form two or the second form is the one that the parents fill out and sign that bears the name that they are allegedly giving to the child. And that's called a statement of birth or a certification of live birth <clears throat> with respect to children who are born or babies that are born alive. And that document there now bears, and in, I should say that in law, in order to transfer something like a name or an idea uh, or music for that matter, it requires that whoever authored it puts it on a piece of paper and then gives that piece of paper to whoever they intend to receive it. So it's like a donor donee situation. <clears throat> In the case of the name, um, when the parents register, the parents don't actually register the birth, but they provide that information. The parents are intending to give that to the, the name on that document to the child. However, delivery of that piece of paper that bears the name 
is made to the government. <clears throat> and so that piece of paper is now evidence of title, proof of ownership, if you will, to the name on the document that the parents that allegedly gave or intended, certainly intended for the child. So when, when the government took that piece of paper, they effectively took the legal title, if you will, to the name that now appears on a birth certificate that we all now use out there in the world. Uh, for example, we'll use that birth certificate to apply for a driver's license, and they'll take the name from the birth certificate and put it on the driver's license account. They'll put it on the social insurance account, on the deeds, the homes, uh, automobiles, all of these things, bank accounts, all of it. So we see that whoever has the legal title to the name that we're all doing business in basically has legal title to everything that we do in that name. And that's how they were able to pledge basically the future productivity of the people to back the money in order to get the money to flow back in the 30s, and that's still happening today. But what is the significance, Vic, of, of the fact that our names on most legal documents, government documents, birth certificates, or social insurance numbers, etc., are spelled in all capital letters? It's so capital R, capital I, capital C, capital H, capital A, capital R, capital D, S-Y-R-E-T-T, all in capitals, Richard Serrett. What does that mean? Yeah, well, it's not actually a relative to that, like we used to think in all capital letters. If, if the name is derived from that original statement of birth document that the government received, and I've, for example, I've seen birth certificates where the name is upper lowercase, the key is, is that the name that's recognized out there in the public does derive fr specifically from that primary foundation document, which is the statement of birth, and then is transposed from that onto a birth certificate, so basically the name that our parents intended to give to us was in fact the title to that was given to the government and then the government issued us a birth certificate so we never actually got a name from our parents we got a name from the government because it's on a government issued birth certificate and it's not not related to the whether it's upper or lower case so much or not it's who holds the evidence of title to that name that is basically the term they used is recognized in law but so what has changed because uh, I don't know how far back this goes, but I I'm assuming, you know, we've had birth certificates in some form or another uh, for, well, hundreds of years, perhaps. Uh, nope, it didn't actually, uh, I've read all those, the law of relating to registration came in about 1869-ish is when they started recording births and what they call the cradle roll at the municipal level, but it had nothing to do with the province. It wasn't until this whole bankruptcy thing took place in the 30s it was basically in order to pledge the future productivity of the people, uh, the people had to be enticed to register the births with the government, <clears throat> this, new, this new formula, and request a birth certificate so that when we use the name deriving or use that birth certificate or any name that comes from that birth certificate, everything done in that name now belongs to who holds the evidence of title to that name. You see, that's how they're capturing the title to all the property. That's why we own nothing. And so, just so we're clear, it's not specifically related to whether the name is upper, lowercase, or all capital letters or not. It's who holds the title to the name that appears on the phone bill, on the deed to the house, on the tax bill, or whether it be property taxes or income taxes or social okay. insurance card or any of those things. All right, but my name is on the title to the house, so how does that mean well it's why does that mean i don't own that house because the government it's is actually holding the evidence of title to that name again that's back ah. to that statement of birth document so the government has the legal title to the name 
that you're using that is now on the deed to the house that is on the permit for the car and bank account, all of these things. Everything that you do out there is in a name that's deriving from that primary statement of birth document that the parents signed. So I don't own my own name? Nope. We don't own the name that we're doing business in, and we don't know we don't own anything <clears throat> that we do uh, with that name. And in fact, it's codified in the Securities Act. And anyone, and this is where people can start doing their own research to verify this for themselves. But uh, it's in the uh, I'll just reference the Ontario Securities Act, and I, but I know it's in all provinces, and it's encoded in, in the in the United States in the Uniform Commercial Codes of the states and the and the National Uniform Commercial Code. That this document is a this statement of birth document is defined as a security. And it is in, in that it is evidence of Title II. Now listen carefully here. It is evidence of Title II, the capital, assets, property, profits, earnings, and royalties associated with the name on the birth certificate. So that's and you know, and I've talked to legal people about that, and they've all confirmed that that basically covers everything that a man thinks he owns is covered by that document, that statement of birth that is actually defined in legislation as a security. And people can look in their Securities Act under under the term security, and you'll come up with it, that any document constituting evidence of title to the capital, assets, property, profits, earnings, or royalties associated with the name on the birth certificate. Now, it won't say associated with the name on the birth certificate. It says of any person. And what people need to to, to, to remember here is, is God did not create persons. He created men and women. Person is a legal fiction. <clears throat> and so when they talk about capital assets, property, so on and so forth, of any person, they are referring to the name on the birth certificate. That's a person. That is not, a, that is not representing, and it is definitely not a man or a woman. And in fact, if someone was to, and here's where we, we also shoot ourselves in the foot when we present these government documentations and then uh, point to the name on it and say, yeah, that's me, we are basically, in essence, making ourselves no property belonging to the government which, in their eyes, makes us incompetent. So, the government how do you has... Mean it? How do you mean, Vic, it, that makes us incompetent? Well, first off, we're not a name, so when, you know, and, it's, and, and I do it all the time, I test people, I'll, I'll pull out a business card, I'll pull out the birth certificate, or ask them to produce theirs, and I'll point to the name on it and ask them, is that you? And every time I ask that question, 100% of the time, people will answer, yes, that's me. What should the proper response be, then? Well, the, the, the proper response would be, no, that's not me, that's the name, that's my name. <laughs> you know, I'm me, and that's something separate from me. Me and that are not one and the same. That's insane when you start really thinking about it, and people might think it's a joke, but it's not a joke. In legal terms, it's very serious. The implications with police officers do it all the time. That's how they get people in court, and I don't want to go down that path, but they'll say, well, he identified himself with a driver's license. Well, how do you identify yourself with a driver's license? You're either yourself or you're the license. Which are you? You can only be one. You can't be both. And two different things are not the same. Not in law, anyhow. <clears throat> so the, I'm guessing, though, the, though, Vic, if, if unless you really know what you're doing, if you were to, let's say, to go to court and, and the judge would ask, you know, is are you Richard Serrett? And you would say, that's my name. Uh, the, the judge would get pretty <laughs> frustrated pretty quickly and wouldn't, yeah, and it's, I don't, like I said, I don't really want to go down that path on this conversation on court. There's, it's, the thing is to deal with these issues out of court to get yourself out of the box so that you're not dragged into court. I mean, first off, this right. is not a ticket to kill people or steal or damage property. 
It's not about that. This is about the debts that everyone, everyone is right now is carrying debt and has a debt load and has payment obligations solely because they believe they own property. And that all comes about because we've been indoctrinated in school by our parents and by society in general to respond or, or identify ourselves with by an as a name appearing on government documentation. It's false. It's not, it's not correct. Right, but we all have the birth certificate. We all have a social insurance number. Uh, so, isn't it too late? I mean, we're now we're trapped, right? We are. No, it's actually, We are slaves to the system. Did we lose Vic again? Hello, Vic, are you there? Yeah, sorry. Okay. Button click there by accident. No, uh, it's actually a blessing when you when you understand what's what's actually transpired here. See, first off, when the government basically. And taking that statement of birth document, which again is defined as a security, that that was pledging our future productivity. The label, the, the labor of the people, and the fruits of that labor is collateral to back the money, which you call debt. That's how the system works. That's the only way. If you want to go in and get a bank loan, you've got to pledge something, right? Uh, some kind of collateral. <clears throat> well, that in itself is a farce because you're not actually pledging anything that you own. But that's another five-hour conversation in itself. So we'll stick to the point here is in order for the government or anyone to pledge property that actually doesn't belong to them remember we all came into this world everything belongs to us and the government got that statement of birth so they got the, uh, the title to the name that we will now use and for public purposes and it does take legal title or ownership of everything that we do in that name but it never got our permission and so in order to do that legally and not be in a fraudulent situation. In other words, I cannot, Richard, I can, you know, all the name game stuff aside here, I cannot pledge something that belongs to you as collateral for a debt without your specific permission. So <clears throat> what the birth certificate actually is, is a bond. That's our ticket to the freedom. It's not a, it's, it's, if you treat it as a personal identification document or you identify yourself, you know, with it or as the name on it, then you basically effectively are converting that security into evidence of title to the human body of your own free will, and that's why you'll feel like a slave. Slavery is abolished, however, nothing prevents, uh, there's no law against one volunteering to be a slave, and we're doing it all the time unknowingly. But the fact of the matter is... We volunteered by buying into the system. We, we, <laughs> in order for a certain amount of security and, and, uh, and so forth, we, we bought in, and now we're, we are more or less trapped. Well, that's right, but once we understand the mechanisms and what has transpired, then we can untrap ourselves. We are basically trapped as slaves or chattel, which in the old times meant is cattle, cattle, chattel, same thing. Let me just, before you proceed, let me ask, a, a, get a point of clarification here. So the birth certificate you mentioned is a, is a bond, we are the, uh, which is offered up as security so that the government can borrow money, essentially. Well, create money, so, yeah. Create money. So... Does that mean that our, our births are registered at the Bank of Canada? Uh, there is a connection there, yes. In other well, words... Explain that connection. Well, it's again, back in the old days, you could, uh, before all of this transpired, a man could walk into a bank with a, you know, a bar of gold or a truckload of gold. It didn't matter, and deposit that gold with the bank, and the bank would actually give him cash backed by that gold. And uh, today... As I say, that's that, that is actually the property. So I I lost track of your question there, Richard. 
That's all right. I was asking whether our birth certificates are in fact registered uh, with the Bank of Canada as collateral. Oh, I'm sorry. So yeah, the, the, the Bank of Canada being our national or central bank, that's where all of these securities are actually not necessarily held there, but they're all connected there. Every birth that is registered has got to be connected to the Treasury because everything we're doing in that name in the future becomes property belonging to the treasury like the gold would belong to the treasury or to the in the bank vault in the days of old and that's what backs the money so there's no question that there's a, a connection with the central bank of canada because if there was no connection there then there would be there would be no uh, notes of the bank of canada floating around out there and they're not actually notes like all right listen Vic, we'll uh, take another time out we'll come back coming to you live from the elite city resort hotel in kalamata greece the conspiracy show vic beck talking about how we became slaves to the system and how we can get out of this game back with more stay with us and we are back coming to you live from the elite city resort hotel in kalamata greece where we've been for the last uh, four weeks uh, next week will be our last uh, show here and then the family and I will be heading up to uh, Athens, uh, Greece, before we head back to uh, Canada. Vic Beck joins us on the line as we discuss how we became slaves to the money system and how we can get out from under this. Vic is a, uh, a researcher, truth seeker. Uh, Vic, interesting email I received here from uh, Andrew, who says, um, Hi, Richard. A little info for your show tonight. Birth certificates are written on bond paper, which means you're bonded to the Queen of England. And on my mortgage title, it states that I'm a tenant, not an owner. Keep up the truth. Uh, let's start with the, the mortgage. I find that fascinating. Is that is that true that on our mortgages it states we are the tenant, not the owner? Absolutely. Uh, if there's two E's on there, like husband and wife, it'll say joint tenants. And uh, uh, But before I get further into that, and, and it's the birth certificate doesn't bond us to Her Majesty per se. It does if we use it in the manner that I said before, if we somebody points to the name on the birth certificate and asks you if that's you and you say yes then for all in which we've all done and by our by 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 our verbal actions and by signing on documents because when we're signing documents we're basically saying we're the owner of something we're not really the owner of that creates what's called an internment and so we basically at that point become tenant to her majesty yes absolutely but I want to make one thing really clear, and people need to understand this part, and it's back to that statement of birth document where the parents put uh, fill out information with respect to the birth of their child, and that's the form that they put the name of the child, and we use the name Richard Serrett. So when the parents put the name Richard Serrett on that document, it ends up in the hands of the government. If that document actually, Richard, was to end up in your hands, then you would have proof of ownership of the name Richard Serrett, and you would have proof of absolute uh, ownership of any any and all property in that name and uh, no one would have you would have the superior claim is what I'm saying and uh, you would but you would also be responsible responsible for debts associated with anything and everything but because that document went to the government they've actually taken it in trust they didn't purchase it they didn't give any value for it and we didn't purchase the birth certificate it was a fee paid to receive it, but that's just purely an administrative fee, and therefore title does, to the birth certificate does not pass, so we don't even own the birth certificate. Bottom line is we do not own the name on the birth certificate. We do not own the birth certificate. We do not own any property, assets, capital. The income that you think is yours is not yours, but yet you'll sign on a tax return. I declare this is all my income, and in doing that, you're saying I'm the name on the account. Now you can see how the government, by, by the government having the title to that name, 
they basically own you. Not really, but <clears throat> in a quasi kind of way. And it's for those reasons that we've all become a tenant. Well, it, it, it was pointed out to me uh, some years ago uh, that Canada is listed on the uh, Security Exchange Commission website as a corporation. So if that's true and Canada is a corporation, that would make us, uh, you and I and everyone listening to this program, we would be, I guess, chattel, office furniture. Well, that, that's like, but like, like I say, that's that's the evidence of that is just the fact that the government has that statement of birth document, and they're right. and they're taking ownership of everything we do in that name, everything you do in your life. This is why Canada has assets of 144 trillion dollars, according to Statistics Canada, but the people will die with assets of less than 10,000 dollars. How did that happen? We're the ones doing the work, right? <laughs> and. Uh, and it's not so much that Canada is a corporation, it's, it's known as a government, but it is a business enterprise, as evidenced by everything is money, 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 right? Well, this is a, this is a short segment, so we'll start this, this discussion, and then we'll break and pick it up on the other side. And, and, and uh, you know, obviously we need to, to, to get to the, uh, the nub of the situation, which is how do we get out from under this. And, and so w- what's, the, what's the answer? Do we not register a birth? No, no, we uh, just... Do we not give... We just, I mean, how do we how do we get out from under this? We, we first off we recognize and we accept and we do our own due diligence. And uh, again, I'm not asking people to believe anything I say here, but we do our due diligence to discover for certainty within ourselves that that statement of birth document is evidence of title to the name and is how the government has basically got ownership of everything, anything and everything in the name that's on the birth certificate. But again, all of that uh, property that actually belongs to us was pledged without our knowledge. That's why they give us the birth certificate in the form of a bond. And yes, it does say right on there in very fine print, Canadian Bank Note or Canadian Bank Note Company. And it is on special bond paper. So the thing is, is people have three choices when they when they accept this, and that is to do nothing and just keep going on as they are and <clears throat> live life the way they are. To get upset about it and try to fight the system or accept the circumstances and i choose number three which is to accept the circumstances which is okay and the government is holding that document that is evidence of title to everything that i do in the name on the birth certificate including the debts see it owns if it owns the property it owns the debts and if we don't own any property how can we have any debts all right let me just stop you right there we'll uh, come back on the other side and we'll flush this out a little bit vic beck truth seeker how we became slaves to the money system. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece, where the uh, the sun is just uh, coming up over the uh, majestic Tahito Mountains uh, here, which are just literally outside my window uh, to the, uh, I guess that would be the east and just to the south. A stone's throw from where I'm sitting is the beautiful Messinian Bay, uh, which, of course, flows into the Mediterranean Ocean, or Mediterranean Sea, rather. Uh, Vic Beck is uh, with us as we discuss how we became slaves to the money system. Now, Vic, I know that you're available uh, to uh, to come and speak with uh, with groups. They can invite you uh, by email, and you come and you conduct these seminars. And, and uh, first, why don't you tell people how they can get a hold of you? Uh, the only way is by email, and I do not have a website or I don't have any marketing going on or anything like that. So it's the email address is bb, b is in bumblebee, b is in bumblebee at tritel. That's t r y t e l dot net, and, uh, and you know that's the communication method. And uh, to touch on your your securities exchange commission, 
the whole reason for the creation of the Securities Exchange Commission in 1934 was the, the cause of the crash was there was no regulation of securities. And companies were issuing securities far beyond the wealth of the company and everything became worthless. So that was the reason for the creation of this the Securities Exchange Commission. <clears throat> and any organization, doesn't matter, even people that want to trade in securities must be registered. So it's not so significant that Canada is a member of that, uh, and it has been a member since uh, the inception of uh, the Securities Exchange Commission. They're quite right on that point. <clears throat> but to the analogy that we are, in essence, uh, I mean, would it be fair to call Canada a corporation and its citizens a chattel? Yep. And only, and again, I just want to clarify, we're only chattel because of how we're actually behaving. We've got to see a bigger picture here, and, and <clears throat> I'm just throwing this out there for people. That's the picture I see, and that's how I operate. And that is, is that Canada is, is our family. If we look at Canada as our family, as a, as a ship, and we're all on this ship, the success of the ship is the, is the success of the people on the ship or the passengers. Right now we're all on this ship, and we're all acting independently, and we're claiming ownership of things that we actually don't own. So we're all independent. It's mine, mine, mine. So now we've got this commercial war warfare going on. If we recognize that what the government has done by registering the births, there's a divine purpose in behind it, I'm suggesting for people to consider, and that is, is that when the government took this document, yes, it took ownership of everything, including the debts. So let it have that ownership. Just recognize that they're holding that statement of birth document as trustee. And, and that's what a legal title, and whoever has a legal title to, to property is holding it as trustee. That's 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 the way it works. So, but in practical terms, Vic, but that's would that mean that if someone holds a mortgage, that they should stop paying their mortgage no. because they don't own the property, therefore they can't be responsible for the debt? No, that wouldn't. That's not the approach to take. The approach to take is to contact the trustee. You're basically, and you're doing that now because you've had, a, as, as Jesus said, by the renewing of the mind, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the renewing of the mind here is going, okay, the fact is I don't own anything. Everything is, it belongs to Canada for all intents and purposes. So fine, I'm going to renew my mind and I'm going to work with that. So you have to, if you stop paying the bank, they're going to take the legal action and you're going to lose the house. It's going to cost you a lot of money. That's not the approach. The approach is, is to contact the trustee the government that is holding that statement of birth document and your birth certificate is a bond in that it's the proof of claim that they're holding your estate. Essentially, in the old days, everyone had their estate. They had the title to the name, you know, Sir John, whatever it was, uh, and then all the assets, so on and so forth in that name, the land, the, the house, the, the, whatever, furniture, so on and so forth. That was an estate. Well, when the government took this statement of birth document, they basically seized all of our estates. You'll never inherit anything from your mother and father. Legally, yes. In fact, no. <clears throat> and okay, um, so I contact the trustee, which is the holder of the uh, the bond, the birth certificate, and no, I tell them is, what is, is the holder of the statement of birth document is the party that issued the birth certificate, and you tell them you want them to settle these accounts. And what will they reply? You're, what, you're asking for, what you're asking for here is non-monetary equitable relief. See, a lot of everybody wants to make this about the money. Now, remember, that statement of birth document is evidence of title to the capital, which is money, and the earnings, which is income. So what's the point of you and I getting paid money when the government holds the, the evidence of title to that money, which means you're really not actually getting paid? 
And that's just incurring further debt on the national economy that everyone pays the price on at the end of the day. So the key is to recognize that when the government did what it did in registering the births <clears throat> since the 30s, is it is now acting as trustee. It is, it is acting as the legal owner because it is, in fact, holding the, uh, the evidence of title, which is defined as ownership. <clears throat> Look, get out the law dictionaries. So, it, in, in fact, the government or Canada owns everything, but it didn't give any, any value to the people for it, so it's holding it as trustee. Right, right. So, again, let me go back to the example of the, uh, the mortgage. And you contact the trustee, the government, and you say, what? Oh, you're asking me. <laughs> but you're going to put words in my mouth. No, you just communicate that, you, as you know, blah, blah, you're holding the evidence of title to the name so-and-so, uh, Richard Serrett, and which is in this document is also evidence of title to the capital assets, property, so on and so forth, in that name or accredited to that name. Here's the birth certificate that's proof that it's, that's my basically title to my property or my estate you're holding. Settle it up. You and what would you expect the response to be from the government? For them to settle it up. Now, it's, it's, I'm expressing this in very simple terms here. Before people consider doing this, they want to have everything clear in their mind and in their heart before they do this. Don't just go specifically on the words. This is why I do the speaking engagements, because I can present the documentation and get people better educated and show them what, you know, the law books, so on and so forth. It's very short and sweet to keep it uh, very narrow and pointed, because when you're communicating with government, if you raise too many issues, they'll pick on a weak issue and you know, they'll sidetrack you off of your, your true intent here. So I just stay focused on one thing. You're the trustee. Here's the proof. They'll settle it up. But it has to be non-monetary equitable relief. In other words, they're not going to give you the money. We, this is why we don't need money, why we don't need to deal with banks. The government does, but we don't because they're the ones that should be paying the bills, because they're the well, owner of the you, property. You did this according to you know, the proper procedure, and this is something you discuss in your seminars. Correct. Are you saying that if that was done correctly, you're not going to get a knock at the door saying you're being evicted because... No, and furthermore, you will no longer have property taxes. You'll no longer have income taxes. All of these burdens go away. The only reason we have these burdens, Richard, is simple because we're claiming ownership of what, in fact, we do not own. We're all living in an illusion here. This is the Wizard of Oz. This is the Matrix. This is exactly what Neo was, was in that movie, the, the <clears throat> Matrix movies, was expressing to people, and he finally made peace with the Machine City, and Machine City is basically the, the crown, the government, the whole, the whole system structure, and... Uh, it's a way to make peace with it is to accept, okay, you took the property that would normally belong to the people. Great, you're the owner of it. I accept that. I don't want the money. I'm not upset about that. I'm not going to sue for millions of dollars because you took property that belongs to me and they didn't pay for it. <clears throat> I'm Just pay the bills. Now, this opens up the door that if your heart's in the right place, and because some people get this idea, well, then I can get a, a whole bunch of cars and big house and TV and furniture and sex, drugs, and rock and roll, if that's their intent, they're still in bondage because there's a divine plan here, and that divine plan is that this property is to be used in, fulfill, in fulfillment of that divine plan, which is love thy brother. In other words, you will be given access to a multitude of wealth capability so long as it's not for self-serving purposes. It doesn't mean you don't get a house. Of course, you're going to have a house, and you're going to be provided freely all of the tools that you need to do what you like to do, to do what's good for mankind. This is how we turn things around. This is the new world order. You know, the, <clears throat> say, for example, you're not paying a mortgage, though. You're paying rent. 
same thing. There's lots of people that are now having their rent paid. But now you've got to convince the landlord. <laughs> no, no the, the, no, no. the trustee pays the landlord. He gets paid. Ah. All of he this does. comes out of the treasury. All of the funds. People are paying for stuff they never had to pay for. Remember, when the, when the government did, <clears throat> I never said this, but when the government did what it did and took title to everything, it also had to provide them the remedy. You can't take ownership of everything and then expect money to come from somewhere else, right? If you own it all, you own it all. Right, you have right. to put up the means to pay for these obligations. What, what happens if, uh, and, and I've asked you this before, but I, I found this to be a fascinating uh, sort of illustration. Let's say you get a parking ticket. Vic, what do you do? Well, effective uh, October 25th of uh, 2012 is when I really got honed in on what's going on there, although I didn't use the terminology I'm using now. It was effective in that every, any and all claims that were against Vic Beck disappeared. All any of and all claims against Vic Beck disappeared? Yep. So, you can't so anything, that, anything that was associated with the name Vic Beck, that's read, that registered name that's derived on the birth, that you see on the birth certificate that comes from that statement of birth that the government is holding the evidence of title to, they took care of all of it. So if you got a parking ticket tomorrow, what do you do? I won't get a parking ticket because once you've made the connection and they, and, and they know you know who you are and what's going on, the name gets flagged. You won't get a parking ticket. You won't get these these speeding tickets and these other charges because they're just going to have to do the paperwork to pay for it. So once they know that, or once you've hit the nail on the head with the trustee, that becomes a responsibility of the trustee to to take care of all financial obligations and to protect that name now from being attacked. The only reason that they're attacking the name and issuing parking tickets and speeding tickets to you and I is because we've claimed ownership of stuff. Once we reverse that and put things and accept things in the proper order, <clears throat> then they won't do that stuff anymore because it just, it's just a paper burden for them. I'm guessing here, Vic, and you, you disabuse me if I'm incorrect here, but having pulled back the curtain and exposed the wizard, I'm, I'm guessing you're not, although they've sort of said, okay, you got us, Vic, all right, we'll take care of your bills, but they're not happy with you. Well, they're not taking care of my bills. They're taking care of their bills. Remember, they have the title to the name. Never, I don't own anything. Granted, but I'm, I'm still guessing they might not be real pleased with the fact that you're bringing this to light. Uh, it depends. It's as long as, and this is why I say it's, if people have their heart in the right place, then this is really good for everyone. If people are going to use this knowledge to take advantage of it for personal and private gain, yes, everyone, would, everyone should have a problem with that because that's what got us all in this mess in the first place. Everybody's out there for their own profit and gain, me, me, me. And the, but the system is not structured that way. The universe is not structured that way. Nature is not structured that way. That's not God's intention at all. That's why I say there's a divine plan in behind the scenes here that people forgot about. It's whatever happened to love thy neighbor. Would it be fair to say, Vic, that you're not a capitalist? Uh, I don't really know what that means, but I would, I would, <clears throat> my my gut says to say no to that question. I'm not a capitalist. It's I'm, I'm <clears throat> like I just said, the if if everyone just sat back for a second and took a deep breath and said, hey, if my if I help everyone else be successful, if everyone's objective was to help everyone else be successful, we would all be successful. But, you know, some of us got us this profit and gain that I'm, I'm worth more than the next guy and this and that and the other thing. And this it has, in fact, people sit back and ponder on it. This is why 1% of the population of the world owns 95% of the wealth. <clears throat> and the rest of us are picking up piecemeal. 
they're taking advantage. If we were to go back to, uh, and, that, and people are now talking about this, obviously, because of the uh, the currency uh, crisis that's spread around around the world. If we were to abandon this fiat currency and go back to a gold standard, back to the way it was before the Great Depression, would that change things? No. It's, 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 one of the reasons for the whole collapse was, too, is that there was not enough gold to back all the debts at the time. The best, the, the way the way they've got a structure right now is perfect. As soon as something is produced at, out of a factory, the money's there to pay for it. That's that's what you call call a balanced economy. There would never be any debt. A brand new car is ro- rolls off the assembly line. In fact, if okay. you read the Sale of Goods Lack, uh, Act, the check is on the front seat of the car to pay for that car. Like I said, <laughs> when the government claims ownership of everything, they also had to put up the money. But it's already paid for. Oh, this is got to wrap. I got a rapid a delight talking to you as well, uh, as always, I should say. And uh, thank you for your time tonight. And uh, yours, and I, I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Vic Beck and uh, his information up on the website if you want to get a hold of him and invite him to a seminar. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort uh, Hotel in Kalamata, Greece, the website richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth wherever it leads. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Looks like another beautiful day is in the works here in uh, Kalamata, Greece, as I look out my window. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata. Uh, this will be our, this is our second to last uh, broadcast. Uh, and I have to again, again thank the, uh, the wonderful staff here at the Elite City Resort. Uh, so helpful, so courteous, so uh, genuinely warm, welcoming. And, uh, and kind, and I can say that for the um, for the rest of the, uh, the citizens and, uh, of uh, Kalamata, uh, as um, North Zach and the mighty Aphrodite, who has now joined us, and I continue to its, uh, the life here in this wonderful country. Uh, as I say, second to last program coming to you live from Kalamata. Next week will be the last one, and then the family heads on up to Athens for a few days before heading back to uh, Canada. Uh, you know. This program uh, deals in secrets and uh, conspiracies and mysteries. When we're talking, when we're talking about secrets and mysteries, there's probably uh, no greater place, uh, no a place that greater exemplifies uh, secrecy um, and mystery than Area 51. And there is a new book out about Area 51. Uh, many people are calling it one of the best on the subject. And uh, we're going to talk about Area 51 uh, over the next hour in part, but we're also going to talk about the group, the UFO control group, which has been in charge of keeping a lid on uh, UFO uh, and ET secrecy. And of course, that dovetails nicely with what, with what might be going on at Area 51. Some believe this base in Nevada has been used to house uh, UFO, uh, UFOs that have been retrieved from UFO crash sites and perhaps even house uh, alien bodies, perform autopsies on alien bodies, uh, back engineer UFO craft. All of this said to be going on in Area 51. And as I say, this control group trying uh, desperately to keep a lid on this now uh, nearly 70 years later after the, uh, the crash in uh, Roswell, New Mexico. So, my good friend sitting in studio back in Toronto, keeping my chair warm, Victor Vigiani is going to help us in this conversation. Victor from Zealand News Network. How are you, my friend? Can you hear me, Victor? Now, what's going on here? Am I off the air? Have we lost uh, contact? 
I'm right here. There you are, Victor. There you go. I'm live here. Wonderful. How are you, my friend? Just fine, and the chair is warm. <laughs> and you just uh, <laughs> you just beat me back from Europe. You were over in Spain. You just got back uh, a few days ago. That's right. Got back on Sunday, uh, made our flight back to Toronto, and everything worked out just fine. Had a great time with... Uh, uh, with a few friends and traveled around Spain for about two weeks and everything. Uh, and your new grandfather. That's correct. Yes. A little, Congratulations. Little, thank you. Little Julian arrived on July 25th and uh, actually made the airwaves on uh, another radio station. Well, that's another topic for another time. <laughs> All right. Wonderful. Congratulations, <laughs> Victor Vigiani. Always sits in when we discuss matters concerning UFOs and ETs. And uh, it's always uh, a pleasure for Victor and I to welcome Grant Cameron back to the program. He's been involved in ufology, um, uh, well, for many, many years, uh, going back to uh, the mid-1970s, really, after some personal sightings of an object which locally became known as the Charlie Red Star. Uh, he's best known these days as the, uh, the founder of the President's UFO website, www.presidentialufo.com, and as I mentioned, his latest book is entitled UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants. Grant Cameron, great to have you back on the program. How are you? Just doing fine, Richard. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, and uh, good evening to Victor. Hi, Grant. The, uh, the new book, um, The Government Informants Aspect, is, is, is fascinating to me, and we'll, we'll touch on that um, as the program progresses. But I, I want to talk about this, this UFO control group, and you've written about this recently on your, uh, on your website, presidentialufo.com. Uh, I'm, I'm gathering that what you mean by this UFO control group is what has become, become legendarily, legendarily known as Majestic 12. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And uh, it sort of starts back in 1987 with the uh, release by Bill Moore and Jamie Chandery and Stanton Friedman of the uh, Majestic 12 document, the MJ-12 document. Uh, which I believe has been altered. I don't believe it's the original document, but it is basically uh, was released to sort of give us the idea that uh, such a group did exist. And the way I got very interested in this was just after the document was released in 1987, um, I was headed up a team of uh, researchers who came in contact with a guy who was the former president of Penn State University. And um, just days after that document was released at the MUFON conference in Washington, D.C., uh, a friend of mine, Bill Steinman, who's no longer in the field uh, from California, uh, phoned up Dr. Eric Walker because through the Canadians uh, in the 1950s, we had learned that he had attended a series of briefings at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, dealing with uh, the recovery of a flying saucer on the, in the western United States alien bodies, and one of the people who had been in Washington and heard stories about the, these briefings had uh, sort of uh, squealed on Dr. Walker. And so anyway, Bill Steinman, days after the MJ-12 document was released, uh, phoned up Dr. Walker and said, Dr. Walker, uh, I've learned from Dr. Robert Sarbacher, who's the guy who sort of uh, outed him, from Dr. Robert Sarbacher that you attended a series of briefings at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base dealing with the recovery of a crashed flying saucer and alien bodies. And Walker said, yeah, I was there, so what? And uh, Steinman got very upset. <laughs> I said, was there, the I saw alien bodies, <laughs> so what? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and uh, 
he said, well, why do you, why are you so interested in that? And so Steinman starts about, you know, this is the most important subject, whatever. And he said, Dr. Walker, I have this document in front of me uh, called MJ-12, the MJ-12 document. And Walker basically cuts him off and he says, look, I've known of them for 40 years. Leave it alone. There's nothing you can do about it. Go study something else. And that started about an eight-year conversation where Walker would try not to talk to people. And there was people from Toronto and London and all over the place trying to get him to talk. But he basically, from a couple days after the MJ-12 document was released, confirmed, yes, I've known of them, MJ-12, for 40 years. The interview took place in 1987. You go back 40 years, it's 1947. So right from 1987, whatever people might think about the document, I knew for a fact that MJ-12 existed because uh, we had this inside track and we wouldn't release the first book on Dr. Walker till 1991, but we knew in 1987 that he had confirmed, yes, he had known of MJ-12 and he confirmed this was basically uh, dealing with extraterrestrials and uh, then tried to talk around not giving us any of the answers as to what was going on. So it's just something that's very much interested me and it, it makes sense in terms of American politics and stuff like that. Like uh, you can say the government is sort of uh, dysfunctional, deadlocked, but they're not stupid. I mean, they they, they came across this uh, crash at Roswell, New Mexico, maybe even crashes before then. And uh, they're basically uh, just setting up a group. They operate it like any other uh, highly secretive organization. They have people who have been assigned the, the, the project and to try to figure out what's going on. It, it makes total sense that such a group would have been established. Who established it and, and when? Give us a timeline and, and who, who made up Majestic 12 as far as you know. Okay, according to the document, and I think the document is fairly accurate, the, uh, the group was set up by uh, uh, President Truman, and uh, it, the group consisted of a bunch of uh, scientists and uh, military people. Uh, one of the key scientists that was, that was on the group was uh, Dr. Vannevar Bush, and uh, he has also been identified by the Canadians in 1950. Uh, the Canadian government wanted to know what was going on with flying saucers in the United States because the uh, the first sort of major book had come out, uh, the Keyhole book on flying saucers, and the first book on crash flying saucers, the, the Aztec crash by Frank Scully, had been released just at that time in September 1950. And the Canadians had gone to the Americans to find out what's, what's, the, what's the deal on, on flying saucers. And they were basically told that it was the most highly classified subject. And they were told that there was a group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush, who was in charge of the UFO. Now, his name appears on the MJ-12 document. So he's sort of the, uh, sort of the lead scientist, as he was the lead scientist during World War II. He was the science advisor to President Roosevelt, was in charge of the uh, scientific side of the uh, development of the atomic bomb, proximity fuse, jet engine, homing torpedo, radar... Uh, all the inventions during World War II, Vannevar Bush headed them up uh, in terms of the administrator for these. So Vannevar Bush is in charge of UFOs, and he appears on this this document that uh, suppose that says that um, President Truman established it, and the document itself was a briefing paper that had been produced for uh, President uh, Eisenhower after Truman left. As people know, the president before usually uses his CIA director, but at, at that point, it was uh, the president and the CIA director 
who would brief the incoming president. So this is what the MJ-12 document is. It's a document that's sort of uh, briefing President Dwight Eisenhower in 1952 as to what the situation is on flying saucers because he's about to become the president. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network joins us in studio and on the uh, on the line uh, from Winnipeg, I believe, is uh, Grant Cameron, UFO historian and the author of the newly published UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants, and, of course, the website presidentialufos.com. Uh, but the actual task of this, this group, Majestic 12, was it simply to study the phenomenon, or was it to um, provide... Uh, uh, or, or was it to put a lid on the information that was coming, uh, to put a lid to prevent the public from knowing about UFOs is what I'm trying to say. Well, it's it's all of the above. It's the way they deal with everything. It's not just UFOs that they do this with. It's, it's basically everything. It's like, for example, uh, when you come to the Area 51 story, um, we knew already – because uh, John Lear was involved in this, that uh, he had gone on to the base, this is in the 1970s, and he'd got a picture of a MiG at Area 51. So it was at that point that uh, it became known that the uh, the Israelis had uh, captured a Russian MiG and that they were back engineering this and test flying it at Area 51. So basically what happens is whether it's a MiG or whether it's a flying saucer, uh, the way I look at it is they come across this crash flying saucer in Roswell, New Mexico. They look at it. Uh, they go like, wow. I mean, look at the technology. They realize that mental phenomena is involved. They realize that the mind is is, is con- controlling the craft. And so they basically just say, "We've this technology is, is extremely important. And they basically classify it as they do every other high-tech uh, weapon t- development system, and it's, okay. that's why it's I've, been. I got to jump in here. Quick. We'll take a time out. We'll yep. come back talk yep. about Majestic Twelve, Area Fifty One, Victor Vigiani from PresidentialUFO.com. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. Uh, joining us back in studio in Toronto, our good friend Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zealand News Network, and uh, joining us via Skype from Winnipeg, Manitoba is Grant Cameron, UFO historian, the author of UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants. And again, his website is presidentialufo.com. And uh, we're discussing, among other things, uh, a UFO government control group, Majestic 12. Let me throw it over to Victor. Yeah, Grant, I uh, just want to find out from you. Um, it's always been of interest to me. Uh, I have a series of documents indicating that the you know the Canadian government, and I use that term loosely, I guess uh, scientific groups within the government back, in, I guess, in the early 50s, um, they had some sort of interest along with following the uh, the United States Air Force lead on UFOs. Um, the, the the idea of the connection between the American government and the Canadian government, uh, how what sort of lockstep uh, interaction did the Canadian government have uh, with the United States in terms of either following the lead of the American government or initiating their own uh, interest in UFOs? What, what is the connection between the, the Canadian government and the American government with respect to this? Okay, I, I would first clarify that it wasn't the U.S. Air Force and the Canadians even identified the fa- that fact. Uh, when Wilbur Smith, who sort of wrote the memo to the Department of Transport identifying what was going on in the United States, 
when he wrote it up, he referred to the fact that he was dealing with American officials. And in he died in 1962, and near the end of his, uh, just before he died, uh, if you've seen his files, you'll see a handwritten uh, note that he made. He couldn't use a typewriter anymore. He was so sick. He had a handwritten message, and he was being asked. The uh, Ohio people knew he was dying, and they were pressuring him to talk about crash flying saucers and all the material that the Canadians had handled because uh, it's been identified by him and also by James Smith, his, his oldest son, that a lot of the material from various crashes and stuff that was recovered was coming to Canada and was being analyzed in Canada, so they were cooperating there. But just before he dies, he does this handwritten memo or answer to these Ohio people, people and he basically says uh, there's a lot of crash material but it's not in, and he puts it in brackets in, t in capital letters, not U.S. Air Force. It's in official hands. So the Canadians were dealing with officials, and the way they would do it is through the military liaison rather than going Air Force, Air Force, because in a lot of ways the Air Force really doesn't know what's going on either. Uh, it, what the assumption is is that there's this group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush, this MJ-12 group, who's connected to the military-industrial complex, uh, the weapon-type stuff. So the Canadians used a guy by the name of Arnold Wright, who was the military liaison, and he was going through the Canadian Embassy to the Research and Development Board. And the Research and Development Board was the extension after World War II. What happened, they had been so successful during World War II in developing the atomic bomb and proximity fuse and homing torpedo and all these different inventions that after World War II, they wanted to continue this this really well-oiled machine for developing weapons. And what they would do is they would hire professors, uh, like on contract, professors would, would input on various uh, types of inventions. And the Research and Development Board headed up uh, all the weapon research. And that's where Vannevar Bush came from. That's where Dr. Eric Walker was the executive director at one point. So these are the sort of the, the weapon people. And if you sort of keep that in mind, you can sort of establish that it's really not uh, like the, the military, it's more the weapon people that are that are looking at this technology. So that was the connection. And you can see uh, the Canadians are in the loop on a number of things. And one of the things I say now is very key that I, I'm figuring out, I think a lot of people in the UFO community are figuring out, and that the Canadians have figured out in 1950, was the fact that they were told that there are other things that might be associated with the flying saucers, such as mental phenomena. Now, since that point... Uh, we now know that mental phenomena is an, a key part to the UFO mystery. It's a key part in figuring out how this thing works. And the Canadians were told this in 1950. And what Wilbur Smith stated in the memo was that if the Americans aren't doing very well because they've asked that if anybody in Canada is working on it, they're willing to exchange credentials and work with us. So that's so basically the way it works is if you have a need to know whether you're in another country or the United States, if there's somebody in Canada who's working on it, then they're willing to cooperate on us, uh, cooperate on this. And what you'll see, uh, another cooperation that took place, this memo was put out in December of 1952, 1950, December 1950, the memo was signed off by the Department of Transport. Six months later, there's a meeting that takes place in Montreal. Uh, uh, Oman Salant, who is mentioned in the Flying Saucer memo, is at the meeting. Uh, a guy by the name of Tizard, who's the top scientist in the UK, is there. A bunch of CIA people are there, and that's the first meeting for MK Ultra. So you can see that they're talking about mental phenomena, and suddenly oh, the Canadians. 12, you mean. Uh, Sorry, uh, or was it MK, MK Ultra? Did you say? 
MK Ultra was started six months after oh, the memo okay. talking about mental phenomena. The, this memo came out saying that the the Americans wanted to work on mental phenomena with the Canadians, and suddenly six months later, you see the main one of the main guys who's mentioned in the memo, who's Dr. Oman Salant, who headed up all the weapon development programs in Canada. Uh, he's at the meeting. The CIA is at the meeting. The head scientist in this in Britain is there, and that's when MK Ultra is, is started. And they have this Dr. Ewan Cameron at uh, McGill yeah. University. He's doing the psychic, psychic driving experiments. So that's the basic way it works: is that if you have if you can work on a program and it's but it's this military research type thing rather than thinking of it as the military. Once it's been developed, once the weapon is developed, then it gets assigned off to a to a say a, a, a military uh, like air. Force or Navy or Army or whatever, right. but they're basically just the people who use the weapons. The weapons are developed not even by scientists; they're developed by engineers. So there's this process of of, of looking at it, and that's why I say MK, uh, the Majestic Twelve group that ran the the cover up, the whole thing was just for weapons. It was like to uh, develop the policies, and then you would send it up to the president, and the president is just basically signing off. But these people are to control the phenomena so that the Russians don't get it, the Chinese get it. And it's always looking at this lead time thing for weapons, that if we can develop this technology, if there's ever a war, we have the lead time. We use the weapon and the other side, it's, it's the, the war is over because they haven't got enough time to develop the weapon. So it's always this, this development of who's going to develop this technology first. Sure. And I'm sure in, I mean, in 1947 they looked at it. Because this is the first time I've actually heard a, you know, a, a connection between MK Ultra, which we spend a lot of time talking about on this program, uh, you know, various mind control type programs, and the UFO phenomenon. This is an area I'd like to explore maybe on another show, just that, that connection, if we could. But if I could get back to the, um, the makeup and the mandate of Majestic 12, what was their mandate, whether it came from Truman or later presidents, in terms of how they were to deal with the media uh, that were attempting to cover the UFO phenomena. What was their mandate? To lie to them? To obfuscate? To infiltrate? Well, it's just to operate the same as they do for everything. It's 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 everything is secret. Um, it, all the military—it's not just flying saucers. I mean, you take any sort of uh, weapon development program; it's secret. They have—I uh, can't remember what it is—but it's like the tremendous amounts of money are spent on disinformation for all different types of uh, weapon development programs. Uh, to keep it secret, to keep it away from the Russians and the Chinese. So it's this, it's this program that's been used on all sorts of different things. And Majestic 12 was just in control of this very highly secret uh, organization because they realized the significance of the fact that this was, this was so uh, – the, the technology was so amazing – that you you absolutely couldn't allow this thing to to leak out. It was, it was like, uh, as the Canadians were told in 1950, this was classified two points higher than the hydrogen bomb, and the hydrogen bomb would not be detonated till two years after that memo was written. So they said it was the most highly classified secret in the United States. So you have this group that is in control of everything, of of uh, the secret, of dealing with the media, of dealing with the president, of dealing with the whole thing. And the key thing is to develop it before the Russians and the Chinese and to absolutely keep it secret so that nobody knows what's going on. And in, in looking at it that way, I mean, they have been successful. They have been able to uh, sort of control the situation. But their thing is to uh, gather the material, to... You know, deal with it to develop the technology, and most of all is to, is to keep a secret. Victor, over to you. Yeah, I actually, I've I've got a, a memo directly from the Joint Intelligence Committee. Uh, it's it's signed by G. S. Austin, 
And this was back in 19, August the 4th, 1950, Grant. And just okay. sort of uh, relevant to exactly what I, I, I was talking to you about earlier, that um, that the United States Air Force, it states in this memo, it's called Flying Saucers from the Secretary of the Joint Intelligence Committee, it says uh, the present USAF policy is to play down uh, the significance of UFOs, investigating only when considered necessary. So basically what the United States Air Force was doing was playing down the whole aspect to the media of UFOs. And then in this memo, a Canadian memo, it says that we shall be in in lockstep with the United States Air Force in playing down any reports of UFOs. So I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is that back in 1950, it was quite clear that the Canadian government, uh, is uh, you know tested to by the Joint Intelligence Committee memo, was in, in lockstep with the United States Air Force, not just the government about playing down the UFO reality uh, to the to the Canadian public. Um, and it's quite clear in this memo that uh, <laughs> the United States Air Force and the Canadian government were, um, were sort of jointly uh, keeping a lid on this stuff. Oh, yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. But I, I would say that you ha- the way I look at it is, is there's various levels. There's, uh, you get your Joint Intelligence Committee, but the thing is, are they read in? I mean, it looks like they're the, the top guys, the same as the president. There's always the story, is the president actually read in, or is he even not, not knowing what's going on or only be given little bits and pieces of it? Who's actually running the show? And that's where it comes down to MJ-12 is, doesn't answer to anybody. And there's this story that was told at the, uh, at the, um, uh, the hearings in Washington with, that Steve Bassett put on the citizens' hearing where Jesse Marcel, I contacted him, and I, I wanted to get a story. I was going to put it in my testimony, and that was the story that had been told to him by this uh, uh, Dick, Dick D'Amato. And uh, he didn't respond to me, but in the hearing, he tells the story, and he tells the story of being in Washington, D.C., and uh, he, he comes in contact with this Dick D'Amato guy. Now, I knew about him because I knew Dick D'Amato had gone to Area 51. I knew that Dick D'Amato had been hired by the uh, uh, Senate Appropriations Committee. And they're key because the Senate Appropriations Committee is in charge of the U.S. budget. So anything that's spent has to go through the Appropriations Committee. Now, when the Area 51 story broke in 1989... The Appropriations Committee, headed by Senator Byrd and a bunch of other senators, suddenly looked at each other and said, are we actually fly- Are we actually paying for flying saucer technology at Area 51? And if we are, we have no idea. We've never authorized this. And they send this Dick D'Amato to Area 51. And he's got all the clearances. He's got everything. He's able to talk to everybody. But Dick D'Amato, this is the story that's told at the uh, citizens' hearing, uh, Jesse Marcel says, Dick D'Amato says, I want to talk to you. And they take him to the secret room, 227 in the, in the Senate building, and says to him, you know, I want to talk to you about Roswell. And Marcel says, well, I've said everything. I've, I've got nothing to tell you on Roswell. He said, no, I want to tell you something. And he's got a book, and he puts the book on the table. And the book is the, the book called Majestic, written by Whitley Strieber. Now, he doesn't have a Roswell book. If he wanted to talk about Roswell, he would put the Roswell book on the table. He's got the book by, uh, called Majestic. About from Whitley Strieber on there, and he points to the book. He says, I just want to let you know that everything in that book is true. And he says, there's a group. They're responsible to nobody. They aren't elected. They have unlimited sums of money, and they are running the show. And this was what he came to the conclusion after he'd been to Area 51, after he'd been around and he'd asked all these sort of questions. He basically says the majestic concept is true. There's an organization outside the government that has money, 
They're not elected, and they are running the show. And this is exactly what Dick D'Amato told Stephen Greer. Stephen Greer was 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 dealing with Dick D'Amato, and Dick D'Amato says, "I have the I had all the security clearances that you could get in the U.S. government. I had unlimited power, and I was not able to get anything. I just want to tell you," he says to Stephen Greer, "You're up against the varsity. You're up against the black." Or the the varsity team of all black budget programs. Good luck and be careful. And that's what he says to him. And that basically confirms the fact that this this is above the government. This is above uh, the Congress. This is a separate organization, this majestic organization. Well, here we are 70 years later, roughly, and we still have Majestic 12, I'm assuming. So who's, who's, who's appointing new members? How do they... Well, that was one of the questions we asked to Dr. Walker. We asked Dr. Walker, we said, are they, are they, is there more than 12? And he basically indirectly confirmed, yes, there's more than 12 now. And he was asked, are they all Americans? Because it started as an American group. And he says, no, which indicates this whole Illuminati thing that it's probably uh, very, uh, you know, rich people, uh, that control the money in the world, are controlling the oil, and are also are controlling this group. And you can see some aspects of this in this latest uh, Snowden story, which is amazing. If you see the similarities between the Snowden story, Snowden leaks this material, and it, it becomes public that the Americans are spying on the Europeans. Okay, and I got to jump take in a look. Here, Grant. Sorry, I got to okay. jump in. We'll, we'll pick up on that point okay. when we come back. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece, Grant Cameron, Victor Vigiani, talking Majestic 12 on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network, back in our Toronto studio, and Grant Cameron via Skype from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Grant, of course, uh, the man behind presidentialufo.com. Uh, an absolutely magnificent uh, uh, website, and uh, his latest book is UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants. And we're talking about the uh, the government uh, UFO control group. Well, I, we used to, I guess it used to be the government UFO control group, Majestic 12, but it seems to have um, taken on a life of its own. Frankenstein's monster has gotten up off the table and walked out of Frankenstein's castle. Uh, so... Just a, a, you, you wanted to make a few points uh, more about that regarding sort of the parallels between Majestic 12 and the uh, and the Snowden case, and then I'll throw it back to Victor Vigiani. So yeah. uh, continue along with that uh, line of uh, thought, uh, Grant. Yeah, I, I think it's important to see what's going on in the Snowden case because it sort of gives you an idea how you can have a group like this which sort of is answerable to nobody, and you it sort of gives you – sort of cuts away all the illusions as to – political parties and and nationalities and stuff and that is that when Snowden went public he stated that the Americans were uh, spying on the Europeans now there's a lot of Europeans were very upset parliamentary people speaking out but if you look closely there was no backlash from intelligence agencies in Europe and even more important is when he asked for asylum from the Soviet Union this happened a couple weeks ago when he first asked for asylum. This, the, the Soviets said, we will consider the asylum request, provided he quits talking about it. Now they have yes, given that. him yes. one-year asylum and under condition that he no longer talks about it. Like This is like they're all working together. Like all the, Whether it's the NATO, whether it's G20, 
it's like the, everybody. It's one big party where everybody's exchanging material. You can you can spy on your people. We'll spy on our people. They're exchanging material, and that gives you the idea that MJ12 works the same sort of way. Probably works the same sort of way in that everybody's together, and you think that you're 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 fighting the Russians, and actually the you know Russians are in, in with your guys. There there really are no boundaries. That it's one big uh, power packed organization. Sure. Sure, I think that, at the top, the all show. these alphabet intel groups are all working or answering to the same people. We just this is a short uh, segment, so I want to I want yeah. to throw it over to Victor quickly and get in a a, a quick question before we have to break again. Yeah, uh, actually, what I wanted to pick up on was that in the in the uh, updated version of the book, you really go out of your way to indicate that evidence really suggests that there's a really slow kind of moving uh, process of some kind of disclosure going on, all mixed in with information and disinformation. Uh, what sort of impetus or what sort of, um, I guess, movement towards any kind of disclosure is really going on? And, and, and is it a mixture of disinformation, uh, inf- uh, solid information? And, and why are they doing that? Uh, I think they're doing it uh, because they don't want people back in 1947 if this thing suddenly breaks and they can't control it. Uh, one of the key guys that, that I sort of quote in the book, I quote Dr. Kit Green who was uh, at one point in the 70s and 80s noted as the guy inside the CIA who controlled the UFO files. He's still sort of involved in UFOs, but he's, he's a medical doctor now. Uh, and he stated, uh, if you were the government, what would you do? He said, uh, you know, how would you handle this situation? You can look at it from the outside and say it's all bad. But if you happen to be the guy that's, that's handling the story, what do you do? So he says, well, wh- what you would do is you would put out stories, you know, crazy stories. The aliens are eating your kids and all this sort of stuff so that when the story breaks – People say, well, what's going on? And they say, well, it's just extraterrestrials visiting. And then, of course, the people say, well, you know, what, what do you mean? There's, there's, they're not eating our kids. They're not, they're not taking over the world. And they say, no, they're just here visiting. And then you go, like, what's the big deal? So you hype it up. And this is actually from a guy from the CIA who, who would be in a, been in charge at one point. And that's what I think they're doing is they're just putting it out. And they're, but they're protecting the classified aspects of the program, which is the uh, technological stuff, the mind control stuff all that kind of stuff that they can build weapons out of. But they want you to know there's a live alien. They want you to know there's stuff at Area 51. They want you to know that, that uh, ETs are here. They want all that kind of stuff. But you can't, you can't spill the milk because once you spill the milk and you make a, an open disclosure, you lose control of the story. And they still want to control the story. This, this way they can get the stuff out and it, it gives the president another 10 years or 15 years or the military to develop weapons and to get uh, farther ahead. So that's what they're doing. They're, they're, uh, that's my impression. They're, they're trying to get the basic core story out as to what's going on and at the same time protect the classified material. So they're really, try- yeah, they're really trying to control things through, I guess, just sort of misdirection and lies and, and, and actual disclosure may even not be, in fact, uh, true disclosure. Yeah, well, that they're, they've mixed it up. Even uh, you go back to 1952, just before the Robertson panel, where they talked about using Walt Disney and stuff like that. Even before then, 1952, the U.S. Air Force came up with the term UFO. And the reason I say they did it, because you'll see Wilbur Smith from Canada never used the word UFO or almost never used the word UFO. I think he knew what it was. It was a diversion tactic to stop talking about flying discs and flying saucers. Because flying okay, discs I've got to jump in here, Sorry, we'll go take ahead. A, time, a quick time out. We'll come back and pick it up on the other side. Majestic 12, UFOs, Area 51, 
Victor Vigiani in studio, Zeland News Network, Grant Cameron, PresidentialUFO.com. Back with more. Stay with us. Welcome back. Our fourth of five shows that are coming to you live from Kalamata, Greece, and the Elite City Resort Hotel here in this beautiful city situated on the Messinian Bay. Uh, Grant Cameron is with PresidentialUFO.com, and uh, he is the author of UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants. Victor Vigiani in studio back in Toronto, the executive director of Zealand News Network. Uh, now, I want to I set aside a few moments before we close the program, because there's a, uh, uh, an article that you've posted on your, your website, Grant, uh, just a, a brief article about... Uh, Paul McCartney's um, studio album, uh, Flaming Pie, which goes back to about 1997. I, I think it was one of his best solo efforts ever. And you made an interesting connection between that, the, the title of that CD and a, um, uh, John Lennon's uh, Close Encounter with a UFO back in the 70s. So I just, just sort of to warn you, I want to set a few moments, moments aside, if we can, towards the tail end here to, to uh, discuss that. But just briefly back to uh, Majestic 12. Um, let me ask you whether, because you and Victor were sort of hinting at this, I think, whether then Majestic 12 is behind, for example, the alien abduction uh, phenomenon or the, the um, cattle or animal mutilation phenomenon. Because uh, I often hear from people in the UFO community, and there's so much infighting in there, as you know, that if someone brings up the issue of alien abduction or cattle mutilation, someone will say, oh, that's Majestic 12 at work. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think they mess around with it. For example, there's there's famous story told about the cattle mutilation where they have the gas mask and the radar chaff. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if they're using gas masks, why would you leave it behind? I mean, it's very easy to distort the thing. I think it's still a, an alien phenomena. And so the, the military comes in and they make it look like it could be them as well to keep everybody off balance. The uh, abduction, I'm, I know for a fact, I, I know the guy who, who's involved with the government, that of a high-level government guy is, is uh, taken and seems to be abducted. I know they send it to a, cer a certain guy, and he looks to see, is this the Russians, the Chinese, is this aliens? They're trying to figure out you know, what's, what's gotten into this guy's head. So they are very interested. I guess it comes down to, if you look at Ronald Pendolfi, who is the former uh, top scientist in the CIA, he said to Dan Smith in 1991, who he was leaking material to, he said, we have a phenomenology problem. And because we cannot control the phenomena, we watch the people that are affected by the phenomena. So what they do, you hear these Milab stories, I think this is true, that you have people who are abducted and what they'll do is re-abduct the people and trying to find out what they are the aliens doing. So the government is involved, they're watching it, but the phenomena is still, I think, a little bit ahead of them that they really don't control this kind of stuff. They are watching the phenomena from the side and really, in some ways, don't have very, very good control over what the aliens are doing. Let me throw it back over to you, Victor, for a question. Well, that's that's exactly one of the points I was trying to, uh, uh, you know, while you're while you're speaking, is exactly who does have control over this whole issue, and it really doesn't seem like anyone anyone really does. And which what it brings to mind uh, to me is w what is the alien agenda, the so-called alien agenda, and do we really know in fact why they're here, what they're doing? So, in all the research you've done, Grant, um, and you've you're probably you know you, you definitely are one of the most preeminent individuals who can make a comment on this what do you think the the whole alien agenda really is i i think they're here they, they appeared after the detonation of the atomic bomb 
The first contactees appeared days after the first detonation of a hydrogen bomb. I think they're here. They're concerned about, uh, first of all, they were in the 50s and 60s. They were worried about atomic weapons. Now they're worried about the environment. We are at a point where consciousness is rising. I think they're taking us over this sort of hump. And I think the government has figured a lot of this stuff out. They have, or not the government, but the the military industrial complex. This mental phenomena thing. I think uh, we've got a long way, and it's 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 almost a different show. But I think we've gone a long way to figure out exactly the whole mental phenomena thing. And I think we've figured out a lot of this stuff. I think we know uh, in science a little bit how this works. And if you go back to 1994, 1993, Ben Rich saying in a in a lecture, he was the guy that had ran Skunk Works with the stealth fighter, the you know, U-2, the SR-71, all the black budget programs, he said, now we now have the technology to take E.T. home. We've discovered the mistake in the equation. And he was asked by Jan Hartson, who's now the head of MUFON, international director for MUFON. He was asked as he was leaving the room, how are they propelled? And he said, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And Jan Hartson said, it means all things in time and space are connected. And he said, that's how it works. I think we're very far along. It's a, it's a whole nother show, but I think we're very far along to understanding exactly how they do it. And I think they're basically here for good reasons. I really do not believe they're here for evil reasons. That's my personal opinion. I, but I've done a lot of work on this in the last couple of years. Could I just take you back to the citizen hearings back in Washington? Uh, both you and I were there. You uh, you provided some excellent testimony to the uh, to the uh, I guess the members of, the former members of Congress. What was your basic intention when you you were seated at that desk and you had uh, a lot of research in front of you, and you had uh, many people behind you who were watching and listening, and you had the, the the members of the former members of Congress. What were you trying to impress these people with? with all of your uh, research what's the key thing you were trying to make them aware of well the one thing i was trying to get them aware of was the fact that that this is this is a no-brainer i mean when the uh, canadian government stands up and i spent a lot of time talking about the canadian top secret memo in 1950 that you have a top secret memo that says number one flying saucers are real Number two, it's the most highly classified subject in the United States. There's a small group headed by Dr. Vandevar Bush. It's the most it, Americans consider to be of tremendous significance and mental phenomena is involved. That's in a top secret memo. We can start from there and say we've known what's going on since 1950. There really is no mystery when you get to the highest levels of the government. That's what I was trying to get along. And later on, I started getting into this interaction with this guy from uh, Salt Lake City uh, who kept saying he didn't he believed that his religion the Mormon church had told him that ETs were for real but he didn't believe that we had the proof so I sort of spent the last couple of times I testified trying to prove to him that there was actual documentation that says yes we've got a live alien we uh, we know that there are aliens and there there is documents and there's proof in the end, he still believed that the Mormon church had better evidence than we had. I don't know where he got that from, but that's what I spent my time trying to convince them that uh, this is all for real, and we've known about it right from the word go, even you know the Ben Rich statement, and there's a lot of stuff that indicates that this is not that much of a mystery anymore. All right, uh, listen, we've got about uh, five minutes here, 
and I, I, um, I guess this, this is for me, but I'm sure there are many people out there that would also be fascinated. I know there would be. And that has to do with uh, a recent posting on your website, uh, Grant, John Lennon's UFO Encounter. You begin by talking about Paul McCartney's uh, studio album released in 1997 entitled Flaming Pie, which is a rather interesting, uh, interesting name. So uh, lead us through that. Okay, it's basically a lot of people don't really realize that John Lennon uh, had two experiences. One was a close encounter with Mei Pang, who was his assistant at one point. It was in her uh, condo in New York City up on the uh, roof level. Uh, very, very close sighting. And then the second one that less people know about is the fact that he had a an encounter with uh, Yoko Ono. He was woke up. You know, he couldn't wake up Yoko Ono. Uh, he thought the the uh, the condo was on fire. There was a fire in the hallway. There was light coming through the door, under the door, through the the keyhole, and uh, he couldn't wake wake her up. So he went to the door. He opened the door, and he said there was these effing bug four people standing there, alien type bug people. And that's the last thing he remembered. The next thing he remembered, he had woken up on top of the covers, and he had this egg, this bronze egg object in his hand, which indicates to me that this was an abduction-type experience, that he had these two very dramatic experiences. He gives the egg to uh, uh, Yuri Geller, who confirmed to me, yes, that he had, had been given the egg. John said to him, he used to have coffee with him at a hotel there, and he said, uh, this may be my ticket to another planet, but I don't want anything to do with it. And here he gave it to him, and Yuri said, I've kept it with me all these years, and I've never had it analyzed because I was always afraid afraid to find out it was made in Taiwan. But he said, I've got the, the egg, I've kept it with me, it was given to me by John Lennon. And then it comes down to this whole idea that abductees will have these dreams, they'll have all these visions. And John Lennon, of course, tells the story when he's asked about why are the Beatles, why would how would the Beatles get their name? Because they used to be known as the Beatles with two E's, and then the name changed to Beatles B E A T. So he's asked, and he said, "I had a vision. A man on a on a flaming pie told me to change it to A, and that's why it's, it was known as the Beatles. And that was always a story that uh, a man on a flaming pie. So when uh, uh, McCartney puts out the album later on in 1998 or wherever it was, he puts out the album Flaming Pie. I, of course, go in to look at the lyrics, and the lyrics are kind of uh, hinting at it, but it's the front cover. Where you take a look at the front cover where they have this flaming pie, and you take a look at it, and it looks much more like a flying saucer than a flying pie. So uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. And I've got some people helping me in New York, and we're trying to track down all the various John Lennon stories about his encounters with UFOs. He told May Pang he thought he'd been abducted as a child. And so this is uh, a quite interesting that probably the most famous musician of the 20th century, may there's a good chance he was a UFO abductee. Fascinating, because uh, as you point out, I mean, he talked about it incessantly with friends, not necessarily with the media, but he talked about it with friends, and then he would later include a number of references to UFOs in some of his uh, songs. Of course, we're familiar yeah. with uh, Strange Days Indeed. And yeah. What are some of yeah, the other references? He, he, yeah, well, that was the main one, and uh, he put it on the album cover. He talked about it on the album cover, uh, and he did talk about the one with May Pang. He's talked about that one a number of times. Uh, uh, there's actually audio tape of him talking about this a couple of times. So he was pretty open about that. The one with Yuri Geller, the only one that tells the story is Yuri Geller. And I've seen the, the egg. And then the strange thing with the egg was that there was a Milab case where uh, two people 
were taken in a Milab experience. And when the one woman saw the egg, she said they uh, when she was in the Milab experience with U.S. military people, they were teaching her to levitate that exact object off a table and through a hoop on top of the table, which is kind of bizarre that it was... When she saw the egg, she said that's exactly the object that we were levitating. My so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bizarre, bizarre story that just gets a little bit wider and wider and wider all the time. That uh, uh, so, And whether McCartney knew, I, I think he must have known the that John talked about UFOs and knew the UFO connection. And that's why when you look on the, the, the cover of uh, uh, Flaming Pie, you'll see it looks like a UFO. It very clearly looks like a UFO. I think one of the main things uh, in, in, with regard to that comment, I think, is the, the idea that Grant has mentioned several times over the, uh, the past hour is the mental phenomenon in, involved in all of this, which is probably when everything boils down to, when it, you know, it's distilled down to its, its significant parts, it's the mental the mental phenomenon aspect of, of this whole UFO phenomenon, which will prove very, very interesting as the uh, as disclosure pans out. Yeah, and that is, like I, I mentioned, the Canadians mentioned it, Ben Rich mentioned it, and Dr. Eric Walker in 1991 mentioned it. He cut us off and said, when we were talking about the MJ-12 group, we were asking how many people are on there, is it international? He said, look, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And the guy who was interviewing from Great Britain didn't have an answer, so Walker answered it for himself. He said, look, Unless you understand about ESP and how it works, you will not be taken in. And he's referring to the Majestic 12 Control Group. You will not be taken in unless you understand about ESP. Very few people understand about it. And then well, when I when I got onto that, then I find out that I've got 18 or 20 people who tell me that they've flown the flying saucer. The aliens are letting them fly the flying saucer. And I ask them all, and they all answer it the same way. How do you fly the flying saucer? And they say, you do it with your mind. Well, that is um, something that we'll pick up on next time, Grant. We'll do. We'll dedicate the entire hour to this mental phenomenon uh, and the connection to UFOs. Always a pleasure, uh, Grant Cameron, PresidentialUFO.com, and of course our good friend Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network. Gentlemen, both, thank you. Thank you, sir. Terrific. Tim Spreen back in studio. Thank you. I'll see you in a couple of weeks when I get back. Uh, in the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be. Re- Nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.